0: Honor and a privilege to be your slave, according to Ryan's text for us. But I think today's a good example of what any one of the elders would say, is that leading a church of people that serve is really, at the end of the day, so easy. Um, Mike was not supposed to be leading us in worship today. It was to be Phil, but uh, I'm trying to resist accusing Phil of losing his voice at the the uh, Guardians game last night. <laughs> because he was technically at the game and he technically lost his voice, I don't want to imply that one caused the other by any stretch. He says it's allergies. Mike and I took him at his word, but we got a we got a text from Phil last night. Hey guys, I uh I don't seem to have the ability to produce any sound. And so we thought we would punt the official decision until 7:30 this morning and i think mike slept with hope beyond hope that phil's voice would come back it didn't but you know mike was supposed to be uh kind of you know he was going to be the one reading the passage for us and so michael gregory got a call last minute and this is this is life at trinity which makes it very easy to lead people who are serving and are willing to serve and who just kind of epitomize what it means to not only serve but be willing to be Treated as servants and to find service just natural. So, thank you guys. I know that as we uh, come into uh, sermons, I'm usually supposed to have an introduction for you, but not today. No, there will be no introduction. We will be getting right to the text. So open your Bibles to chapter 11, verse 27, which says the following, and they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who would do that? Who would walk into somebody and without saying hi, without any way of an introduction, would just, you know, come right in and blurt their request to him? Don't you hate it when there's no introduction? Maybe I had an introduction after all. Who knows? But this this is what's been going on, right? Michael started to read for us from chapter 12, verse 1. What took place right before Jesus gave that parable was a really blunt Tuesday morning greeting from assembled, uh, sorry, and uh, uh, representatives of the assembly of all of the Jewish leaders. What we hear about in these, verse 27, chief priests, scribes, and elders could be thought of as the delegates of the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. That's a different word than we would use. We're using their word, pronounce it however you want. That's who's here. It's those that would represent the law. It's those that would represent the liaison that Israel had, uh, Judah had, the, the people of God had with the Romans, and it's those who represented the temple. They've all gotten together, and they are now coming to confront Jesus, and they're asking this question, who in the world do you think you are? No introduction. No, hey, how'd you sleep, Jesus? Hey, how was breakfast? What's going on with that fig tree, by the way? Heard you did something there. No, what they're worried about is not the fig tree. It's the reality the fig tree represented, right? You messed with the temple, boy. Who said you could do this? That's the question. And in that, what we see is both Uh, 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 a failure, just a, a cataclysmic failure on behalf of those who would be representing the people of God when their Messiah arrived. Wouldn't, wouldn't God's people have wanted a better reception for their Messiah? A couple weeks ago, we saw the triumphal entry that seemed like a good one, Mark didn't tell us about it, but we do know from other sources that when that happened, those who were crying out from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who are taking that prophetic expectation and laying at Jesus' feet when they're doing this, some of these same authorities came and said, hey, you got to tell them to shut up. They are using that prophecy the wrong way. Clearly that can't apply to you. And Jesus said, you're getting it wrong. So much does it apply to me that I'm not just coming for people. I'm coming to loose the bonds that the earth has been groaning under. So that if people were quiet, rocks would speak out because what I'm going to do has massive significance. The religious leaders we are going to dissect the failure of today have been opposing Jesus, not just for the past couple days. But really, from the whole book, as Jesus has done stuff, they've opposed it. They've taken what they don't understand, mingled it with their pride, and delivered something of an unbelief that has been part of Israel's story for years. When God works outside the bounds of what we have contained him to, we become very frustrated. And sadly, the people who ought to have been leading are failing and are leading the people in their failure. And J.C. Ryle says of that, these things are written to show Christians that they must beware of depending too much on ordained men. Great quote whenever you didn't realize it was going to be Pastor Appreciation Sunday. So Mike, Brian, Keith, wherever you are, Brad, let's not think too highly of ourselves because we have delegates representing us in this story. Delegates Failing, miserable. And Ryle continues, The orders of no church confer infallibility, whether they be Episcopal, Presbyterian, or independent. Bishops, pastors, deacons at their best are only flesh and blood and may err both in doctrine and practice. Their acts and teaching must always be tested by God's word, and they must always be followed so far as they follow him and no further. There is only one priest and bishop of souls. Who makes no mistakes? Now, with that in said, I hope we still get to keep the flowers because they really do smell very good. So, thank you. But what we are going to do is we are going to dissect the failure of those that are opposing God, and in dissecting the failure of those that oppose God, what we're going to see is really it, it, we're going to be confronted kind of on two um, two fronts. One, I think we need to be listening through this story because something is going to happen. And then, as it happens, Jesus is going to tell a story about what is just happening. And we've got to be seeing what's happening, real history, and Jesus' kind of commentary on it. And the first question we have to ask is how similar are we to the people who are being diagnosed in their failing? Because the same mistakes they make aren't just mistakes that your leaders here can make, they are mistakes that can belong to the entire congregation. I'm sorry. Beyond that, having sort of entered into the text with that sort of that dose of humility, hopefully we'll then also be able to ask a second question is, where is this same energy opposing God's kingdom today? And then what are we to, supposed to do about it? As Christine and I were talking about the text yesterday. She said, so how does Jesus, <laughs> you know, Jesus just come in. He's just, as the priest kind of cleansed his temple and Phil and I were talking about this text. He said, you know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, whenever the, somebody would be diseased, they needed to come back. When Jesus would heal somebody, he would say, go show yourself to the priests so they could re-evalu- reevaluate you right after your cleansing, right after your healing. He says, it's kinda like what, that's kind of like what Jesus is doing. Last week, he just cleansed to the temple. He purged it of what? ought to have been the problem. And like Jesus among his lampstands, the one priest who's there to be trimming and seeing what's going on with all his churches that ought to be shining bright, he now comes back to the temple and he's doing a re-evaluation after the cleansing. And what happens? The delegates of the temple are saying, we didn't want to be cleansed. How dare you? Who are you? And who gave you this authority? Now, as that happens... And as that tragedy unfolds, like I said, we're going to ask questions of ourselves. And then we're going to ask broader questions of the world. But I was talking about this to Christine. She's like, what what does he do? And I'm like, well, he starts by telling a story. But this is now going to introduce a new real section of what's going to happen. And basically all of the rest of chapter 12. And until we get to Christmas, we're just going to be looking at the way that Jesus diagnoses problems in the people, in the leaders, and in the world. And we're going to have to interact with some of them. Now, if you've been one of those who'd say, man, we don't deal with enough current events and topics, don't worry. We're going to be dealing with questions like taxes. Isn't that going to be great? Jesus is going to hit us on a number of different levels over the next couple months. And before we get to celebrating the incarnation, we are going to have to square up with what Jesus presents the world and the church and each individual Christian, and we're going to have to walk into each one of these passages with humility and then discernment. That's going to be the order that we're going to try and tackle it in. Not just immediately, us and Jesus against the world, who's so opposed to his kingdom, but Jesus is addressing me before I get to join him in helping to free others. So we want to make sure that we see the failures the leaders will exhibit today as ones that we ask ourselves questions of first And then secondly, we ask, how do we engage a world that's in rebellion against him, just like these leaders are? So we're going to see three failures. Uh, I can't imagine that the number of failures shocks you, but the first failure we're going to see there is that they failed to recognize Jesus' authority. And if you are immediately going to, yes, you're right, just like the world, nobody in the world today recognizes Jesus' authority, you're right, but let's ask questions of us first. First. Here go the leaders. Verse 27, passage I just read to you. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or they said, who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, what Jesus has just done, they are recognizing you are acting over top of the delegated authority in the temple. Sadducees generally got to be the ones who helped to maintain the temple, figured out what to do with all its money, all those kinds of things. We'll see this Sadducees later on in this chapter. But right up front, they're coming and saying, did you clear this with the right people? This script, did you, did you ask? Did you get permission? Who gave you authority to come in and tell us that we couldn't be doing what we're doing? Because they recognize the significance of what he's just been trying to do. And Jesus says, Whoa, that's a tough question. I don't know what to do about what you're asking. Now he doesn't do that at all. We will find this, and we have found this so far. Challenging Jesus never goes well for people. And it doesn't right here either. Having asked that question, Jesus, then verse 29, uses a tactic of the day, a rabbinic tactic, to be able to engage with them on their terms. And he says, great. I will ask you one question. Answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus is getting pushy, isn't he? He starts and he ends. He bookends his question with a demand. I get no introduction. I get no greeting. I get no, hey, how was breakfast? All right, fine. Then I'm going to throw one right back at you. No, I will answer you once you answer me. Answer me, John. When he baptized, what was he doing? Was it earthly or heavenly? Who gave him authority to do what he was doing? And they discussed it with one another saying, he got us. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? And why was it that potentially there would be this sort of heavenly authority that we would be thinking about with John's baptism? Because it's not just about all the other people John baptized, John baptized Jesus. And if we just go back in what Mark has already shared, we read this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, God has spoken of his people in parent-child relationships before. You remember when Israel was held, before they were really Israel, when it was just the descendants of Jacob, right, were held in captivity and gone from being 70 people to like two and a half million people. And the Pharaoh had forgotten Joseph and a new dynasty came in and they saw Israel as a threat. And so they, they just, you enslaved them all. When Moses was coming and Aaron was coming, they're delivering God's message. God said, you've got my son, let him go. And it escalates to the point where he says, you're doing this to my son, I'll take your son. This is the way God has spoken of his relationship to his people, but his people have just done such a poor job carrying the family name for so long that no prophet, no king, no leader, no priest was ever right. For the job was never really the one who could bear the family name the right way until Jesus comes baptized by John and heaven opens and speaks, finally, my son who pleases me. So whose authority did John baptize with? You can see understanding what we know from Mark, why Jesus is pointing to his baptism and talking about the authority that's there, but... They are stumped, and they say, well, we're not really sure. They continue in verse 32, but shall we say from man? Because they were afraid of the people, for they all knew that John really was a prophet. So this is a good question Jesus has posed to them. They're asking a question of authority, and he's saying, well, I know when my authority essentially was first granted. You weren't there at the Mount of Transfiguration when the same words were repeated over me in front of my own. But in more of a public way, there was a real moment of heavenly authority granted to me so I could do this very thing. Let's just ask the question. When John was baptizing, Did he do it on heaven's authority or earthly authority? Earthly authority? Man, he's got the hearts of the people. You can't go against them. Why? Because you're terrified of them. Popularity has always killed leadership across the years. And it's no different right now. And so when they say back to Jesus, verse 33, we do not know. That's such a lie. They just don't have a safe answer to say, wow, you stumped us. Good question. That wasn't the answer. It's not the only time that they'll do this. But then Jesus says to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You remember when Jesus went into a small kind of obscure synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand. Same kind of question came up at that point. And in then doing so, it says, uh, kind of coming after that, then the the people, uh, coming out of that, the people were um, sort of upset with Jesus. And when, I I love the way, again, sorry to reference this too much. Although, hey, season three of The Chosen is coming out, by the way. Interesting, uh, I think it's November 18th. They've got like their first two episodes in the theater or something along those lines. But uh, in The Chosen, which is what I'm coming back to, Uh, They they combine the two of these events really, really well where the people who are offended in the synagogue come out to meet Jesus and they find that Jesus' disciples are uh, harvesting some wheat because they're kind of hungry. They've taken a little bit and they're they're just kind of shelling it and they're just popping it in their mouth. And they're doing it on the Sabbath. And they ask Jesus... A kind of a two-part question, and it's the same question. By what authority did you do what you did in the tabernacle, and by what—or sorry—in the synagogue, and by what authority are you allowing them to violate the Sabbath right now? And so Jesus says, "Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him." And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It was the exact same kind of interchange, different topic, but exact same principle. You're violating the terms and the rules that we've created. You did it in our synagogue. You're doing it right now with our Sabbath laws. Who gave you this authority to do it? And the same Lord over the Sabbath is now saying, based on my baptism and the heavenly authority conferred upon me by my Father, I am Lord even over this temple. I'm the only priest who has the right to come in and tell you what you can do and what you can't do. You're going to recognize that? And the failure of the leaders at this time is that they fail to recognize his authority. James Edwards says, what Jesus now asks them cannot be answered from their power base in the Torah, the temple, or Roman authority. Thus, Jesus' question implies that he stands not under the Sanhedrin, but over it. His counter-question is evidence of the very authority of which he is questioned. Now, Mark's done a good job at the end of chapter 11 of setting us up to really be upset with the Sanhedrin, but let's join the Sanhedrin for a brief second before we're opposed to them. How many times has Jesus asked you to do something? Either overtly from his word, where the terms of obedience and disobedience, sin and faith are clear, and you violated those terms and went along and sinned anyway. Just take the last time. you failed in exactly the same way these guys failed. Anytime that God authoritatively speaks to us, In his word about something that we are to do, and we do not do it, we are taking our place alongside the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and we are coming along and saying, No, by whose authority do you tell me I can't be happy? By whose authority, God, are you telling me I can't vent the way you want to? Uh, By whose authority are you telling Mike that he can't hold on to that bitterness that he had? Because that bitterness is his friend, and by what authority, Jesus, are you telling me that I have to forgive? This is the mistake that has been made since the garden. By whose authority do you tell me I cannot eat? Who are you to tell me I can't have what looks good, what seems good, and what will bring me good? Who are you to deny me the good that I see right now? This this is the ugly underbelly of every one of our sins is a heart that fails to recognize the authority of Jesus. And if we want to do any good in this world, and we ignore our fundamental agreement with the Sanhedrin, then we will absolutely be disengaged from a world we're trying to correct. Because no doubt we are swimming in a current away from the authority of God. Every way that God has set up pictures of his authority, those are being marred and desecrated across the board at light speed today. It is not just that evil is tolerated, it's that those who will call evil evil are then being opposed and being vilified. That is the culture we live in today. But to do any good, we have to start by recognizing I'm so like this. And God, just like James Edwards says, the question implies that he stands not under the Sanhedrin, but over it. We have to ask the question, do we stand over God and tell him when he cannot take our comforts? Do we stand over Jesus and tell him when we will dictate the terms of our lives? Or do we stand under his authority and say, your will be done? The question we have to ask if we're going to do any good in this world is: Do we find that we need to repent of the way that we're similar to the world that we're trying to help? Because, use Jesus' language, nobody really wants anything removed from their eyes until they feel all the splinters in your hands of everything you've been taken out of your own. You got a trouble. You got a problem with God's authority. And if you can't square up with that, then you're going to have no compassion for those that you're trying to help submit to the authority of God. First failure that we can relate to is that they struggle to recognize and to live under the authority of Jesus. That takes us to the end of chapter 11. Having been confronted in this kind of blunt, no introduction sort of way, Jesus then turns and tells the parable That Michael just read for us. 12 verse 1 says. He began to speak to them in parables. So ask the question. No I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to ask you a question. You're not going to answer mine. Okay I won't answer yours. And Ted let me tell you a story. A story in my words. But a story that clearly borrows. From Isaiah's language in the past. The story. That also links for us something that was supposed to bear fruit and didn't, that bookended the temple cleansing in the first place. So we didn't think the fig tree was about the temple, which was, I think, kind of clear before that. It's abundantly clear that it was about that because of what Jesus is about to tell us in this story. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased its tenants and went into another country. Do you hear the amount of work in verse 1? Just look at the verbs. Look at the verbs of what he did. He planted, he put, he dug, he built, he leased before he went. The owner was very active. Did everything necessary for the tenants to be able to have a productive business. And for him to be able to cut a profit in his absence. He did absolutely everything was necessary. And he had it all done. So that when the season came. He could get some fruit. Verse 2. When the season came. He sent a servant to the tenants. To get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And who's Jesus looking at when he starts to say verse 3. If the Sanhedrin delegates are still there, I think he's looking them in the eye. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He just wanted his due. It was his fruit. He wanted his cut. He set you up to succeed. He did Everything for you, all you had to do was let the well-oiled machine run. You had to do your part as the tenants and just give him his due. And what happens to the servants of God? They are beaten, they are empty-handed, they are struck down, they are shamed. They are killed. Many are beaten. Many are killed. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lustre you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Are you kidding me? I've got to be the first person in history who's done what God asked me to do and it didn't work out for him. Except for Jesus said, No, actually, that's been the story of everybody I've ever sent. Because so they, these questioning delegates of the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who persecuted the prophets who came before you. How dare you, Jesus? We are in succession with the prophets. Oh no, you are not. You in this story are the tenants. The tenant priests over my temple vineyard have been killing prophets for ages. Let's go back to the one who you think you're the guardian of, Moses himself. The author of Hebrews says, by faith Moses, let me tell you his story. When he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You want to know why we can tell that the tenant priests are on the wrong side of this story? Because they are doing great. They are prospering, which puts them so on the wrong side of history. God's servants were never, never intended to be getting all of their treasures right here. The persecuted prophets who were before you. And the thing I'd want you to remember about Moses is he was just like that. To follow God, he had to fall away from the powerful and the pleasurable. Paul, in fact, says we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Here's the appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Here's the question. That sounds like one of the greatest messages you could probably ever deliver. Every person you'll ever talk to knows that they have a problem with sin. Every person you ever talk to knows, either overtly or in their heart, that the world's broken and it needs to be repaired. And the message that Paul has said that we carry to this world is that he who didn't have any sin made him to be sin so that in him we might become right. We're sinful and broken And we only become right by coming in line with God, who though he hadn't sinned, bore our sins for him. What is so possibly offensive about that? There's a lot that's offensive about that. One, God's right and we're not. And the world fundamentally hates that. One, Jesus is different, and we need to become not like ourselves. We need to become like him, and the world hates everything about that. And lastly, he has authority to tell us how to live, and the world hates everything about that. But the only way to be an ambassador who carries this message is to remember we needed that message in the first place. The only way to reach out to others who would cause suffering to God's servants is to recognize that we've caused some others to suffer. And so the failure, the fundamental failure of the leaders is that they fail to respect God's ambassadors. So Peter could say, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you can be blessed then. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Honestly, we could preach a whole sermon just on that. But I want you to hear that along with what Paul is saying, along with what Jesus is saying, along with what faith at its very essence is, exemplified by Moses, one of the many who would suffer for being an ambassador for God. Do you know how many times I've talked with Christians Oftentimes, Christians who have labored and been faithful and made sacrifices for years and who have then carried into a conversation that we've been having, something that echoes in my own heart. Why has God let me down? Didn't he owe me for my obedience? My life was supposed to go different. I served him so faithfully and he dropped the ball. And the reason I can... I can hear that and be compassionate to that is because it's the same frequency that shatters the, the glass inside my heart. I believe that so often. Look at everything I've done. God, how could you have dropped the ball? Because my obeying you was supposed to lead to life and to joy and to peace, and I am now suffering, so what are you doing And Peter and Paul and the author of Hebrews remind us, what story have you been reading when you open up the Bible? Long ago, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. His son is now here, now beginning the week of suffering, now entering into his passion, taking up his place of authority and being challenged, being told, you don't have the right to do this or to be here. This is the way every single prophet who walked with God by faith was treated. And when Jesus came, he was treated the same way. And we stand back here. Don't worry, there's no camera. They don't have to worry about where I am on the stage. This is nice we might not fix this camera thing. I'm kind of liking the fact that I've got a little more freedom. But we look back on this story and we think, faithful, suffering, servant. Faithful, suffering, servant. Faithful, suffering, servant. Jesus, the faithful, suffering, servant. Me, what is suffering doing in my life? How can we be so stupid? What story have we been reading? It's not stupidity, guys. It is the same heart of sin that these leaders are putting on display when they are failing to respect God's ambassadors. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This one was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he's the one upholding the universe by the word of his power. And when Jesus is going to tell his own story, not Peter looking back, not Paul looking back, not the author of Hebrews looking back, but when Jesus is gonna tell his own story, he says this in verse six, he had still one other, a beloved son. And so finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son. They will respect the radiance of the glory of God. They will respect the exact imprint of his nature. And he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. When that one arrives, they will respect him. How could they dare do any different? But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And you question why you suffer? This is the one who over and over in Mark said, we're going to Jerusalem so I can be ashamed for you, so I can suffer for you, and so I can be killed for you. This is the path I am going to walk, leading to resurrection and glory. But it's the only path to get there. And here he's telling the story of what would happen 2,000 years later, we live in a country that we still desperately want to call Christian. Because there are echoes. There are echoes in our foundation of what we value. We don't slaughter children the way the Romans did, or do we? We don't worship so many other idols the way that the Romans did, or do we? We don't have feasts where we eat until we gorge and we throw up and we neglect the poor or do we? But I can tell you this, we live in a society in which the name Jesus is used as a curse word more than a worshipful word. That is the society in which we are being influenced. This is a society who has decided to say to the heir, let's kill him and take what's his for ours. We live in a society, guys, that fails to respect the ambassadors of God. And if you don't want that, it's time to go. If you signed up for following Jesus so you could be popular in this society today, it's time to go. We've got no place in this church. If you're signing up for a life in which you're going to be applauded for all the great things that you do, then it's time to go. That's not the way of a disciple. That's not the way of the church of God. Because we, to be, in Paul's words, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, imploring the world to be reconciled to God, will be treated just like every one of his ambassadors. And here, the leaders of those that ought to be respecting God, but are opposed to God, are telling him, no, come they will respect my son. They killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I'll tell you, if I moved out of the state and I set up my son to watch over my property and I granted him all of my authority and I let somebody else rent out my house, And when he came for a rent check, they killed him. You don't even have to guess what I would do. I wouldn't rest until we had paid them back everything they deserved. And I know we're Christians, right? We're standing on this side where we remember the story of Jesus with Nicodemus, where Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Right, John three sixteen. We all know that. We know how that worked. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. So whatever looks to Him will be saved, because God so loved the world that He sent His Son. So whatever believes in Him would be saved. Right? That's, that's the way that goes. Jason, if you can skip ahead to the slide that says John 3, 17 to 19, we hear these words as well. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That sounds great. But in order that the world might be saved through him. But here comes condemnation into the story again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved loved the darkness rather than the light. Two slides earlier, Jace. Isaiah 5, my beloved had a vineyard and on a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now <coughs> God enters into the story. Isaiah has been, been telling God's story. Now God speaks and he says, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured what would the owner of the vineyard do? It's Jesus' words. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This means one thing, but it has three implications. Isaiah 5 has said that this whole analogy represents the heart of every person within Israel and Judah, right? That was Isaiah 5, who Jesus is clearly referring to. So to look back and use that interpretation of it, God is looking for fruit in the life of all of his people, and those who fail to represent his authority, or sorry, to (coughs) realize his authority, those who fail to respect his, uh, his tenants, or sorry, his ambassadors, those tenants like him, they are also failing to remember God's real anger. So to use the Old Testament sort of point of this, we cannot take our sin lightly. If you've been in a pattern of sin with God, where he's been asking for fruit in your life and you are yielding no fruit because you've been looking at him and saying, by what authority do you tell me I don't have the right to be comfortable? And if you've been doing that for a very long period of time, do not make this third error. If there was going to be preaching before Jesus came preaching and everybody was to be asking the question, who deserves the judgment of God? It was very clear. It would be the Romans and those participating with the Romans. It would be those rejecting God's authority. It would be those living lives of sin. But who would be free from the judgment of God? Clearly, all of the scribes, all of the chief priests, and all of the temple delegates. Those people would at least be on God's side. And here, Jesus is saying, I don't think so. He will come and destroy the tenants. That's those who just challenged his authority. What does that tell me? It means absolutely everybody should not look to their past and say, oh, I'm good. Everybody should be asking questions of their own heart, the fruit in their own lives, and not making this third mistake that we come to think that just because God has been long-suffering for ages, that he will always have that disposition towards sin. What will the owner of the vineyard do He'll send Jesus to come and forgive us. Yep, Jesus is here. And he'll return. And when he returns, that moment of his long suffering is done. And it's unwise for us who don't know the scope of history to assume that we have more time to sin, more time to ignore, and more time to imitate these tenets because we do not want to fail to remember the anger of God. Remember Psalm 118? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad at it. That was the passage that was being used just a little bit ago when Jesus made his way in, in, in in Mark chapter 11. That's exactly what they're quoting. Jesus now quotes the exact same psalm, Psalm 118, and says this, Have you read this scripture? Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. (laughs) This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In a world of very, very, very big stones around the temple. Jesus is saying, you're talking to the biggest right here. The word stone is actually added, I'm not very good at translation, But the actual literal kind of rendering of the word that that gets translated into cornerstone is actually chief corner or head corner. Sometimes in some translations, you might read this as the chief cornerstone. The word stone is actually implied. The emphasis is on the significance. And this is a word, again, a lot of other New Testament authors then look back and use. It was from Psalm 118, right here, which is being, uh, which is being you know sort of quoted by Jesus. It's from Isaiah 28. Jesus is then referencing it. Paul looks back and says, "The, the significance of this stone is that whoever trusts in Him won't ever be ashamed." That's a that's a pretty big deal. Peter looks at it and says something similar. He's saying Jesus is this cornerstone, and if you join yourself to him, your life becomes as like precious stones in that same building. So everything that you think dirties you and sullies you and disqualifies you from the kingdom of God, if you put yourself entirely married up to Jesus, somehow that is gone, and the preciousness of your faith is on display. What a trade that the one who knew no sin could become sin so that we could be made into the righteous ones. But Peter also says something else, something that points back to Isaiah chapter 8 is that this stone is so significant that everyone touches it, no one ignores it. You either build on it or trip over it. It is that important, what you do with Jesus, that John chapter 3 comes back and references this. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but once he came, what you do with him makes all the difference. The failures of our lives, guys, make us have to ask some fundamental questions about what we're going to do. And the failures that Jesus has just unpacked in the hearts of these tenants that they just put on full display, both in the way they were leading in the temple and now the way that they're responding to correction. Those kinds of failures are so significant that, like we've been doing, we have to ask, where are we imitating them? And we have to repent. But there's... One other similarity that I want you to see, we touched it at the very beginning. It comes up at the very end of this story as well. It says in verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Two times, Mark says, I want to tell you what's been driving these people so much. It's the thing that got them to not answer Jesus' question in the first place. And it's the thing that's making them not really respect and really wrestle with the parable that Jesus has just handed to them. They were so in love with being popular. And if everything was to be taken away from them, that's what they would guard to the bitter end. We're going to ask questions about culture in the next few weeks. But the one that you have to answer is, are you sharing the same allegiance that the temple priests are sharing as well? Are you so in love with being popular that you're going to silence any way God wants you to change from this text? Because we live in a world that will get rid of any of us if we violate the terms of the commitments the world has put out there. There is a legalism that rules the day and it is telling us to bow down to what the world values. And if you are scared of what people think of you, and Jesus says he doesn't have much time to think of us, we cannot have the same allegiance that the priests have they feared the people, verse 12, 1132 They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. And church, if you were gonna follow Jesus and you were gonna make it into the rest of this world in rebellion against him, and you're gonna do any good, one, we have to enter in humbly, but two, we have to repent of being slaves to the popularity of this world. We have to be willing to be persecuted like Jesus is persecuted if you are afraid of what people think of you, you cannot serve God. Or to put it bluntly, like the book of Proverbs, the fear of man is a snare. And that's it. The last point, I'm going to bring this up a couple weeks, but I want to introduce this quote to you because it reminds us of the kind of world that we're dealing with. And that's this, simply, we see those who are enemies of God unwilling to talk about why they're enemies. When Jesus points out their love affair to the world in the beginning and kind of at the end here, they do nothing. They've got inner turmoil that they're unwilling to diagnose and to disclose. J.C. Ryle sees a principle behind that that we ought to be aware of. He says, the plain truth is that we ought to be very slow to give credit to the unconverted man's professed reasons for not serving Christ. We may, tolerably, we may be tolerably sure that when he says, I cannot, the real meaning of his heart is, I will not. A really honest spirit in religious matters is a mighty blessing. The ruin of thousands is simply this, that they deal dishonestly with their own souls and allege pretended difficulties as the cause of their not serving Christ. While in reality, they love darkness rather than light and have no honest desire to change. And with that, let me ask you the same two questions we started with. Is that you? Have you been, to use Spurgeon's words, giving fair names to foul sins? Have you been shielding unbelief under things that are just a lot more popular? Have you been trying to find reasons that you think God's done you wrong so that you can harbor sin and unforgiveness and bitterness and self pity in your hearts? Is this us? is the first question, and I think we need to go away and do some time with God, if you, especially if you found yourself in something that's felt paralyzing, something that's just felt enslaving, it may very well be that one of the first things you need to do is some honest dialogue with your own soul and take Ryle's words to account for our own struggles. So enter in humbly. But the second is this. Let's not believe that a world in rebellion against God is going to tell us the truth about why they're rebelling. Sometimes we get tripped up over arguments because we're believing what a world says. and we don't want to doubt everything. Oftentimes, the world has a lot of stuff that they're seeing and really genuinely confused about. But sometimes that confusion is a shield for rebellion. And if we stay simply at the parts of what seems confusing about the church, about our history, about what the bible says, about how things interrogate, yeah, those things are true. But what we see out of this passage at least is those rebelling against god, unwilling to say why they're rebelling. And that's as true today as it's been back then. I hope you can see why I kind of am treating this text as something we want to dive into and as something also that's going to set the context for us. For the rest of what we're going to do in chapter 12, Jesus is going to help us interact with a variety of different sort of parts of our lives that we're going to have to first be humble about and second study how to engage the world in. So if you're curious about those, I would love it if you read chapter 12. Let's come soaked in the word together and ready to ask some questions together about what really is going on well, probably also, I, I, was, I was breaking these out a little bit more. I'm probably going to squish two of them together. Uh, one, so that we're talking about a more pleasant topic when the kids are in at the end of October. But two, so that we have a little bit of a sermon sort of hanging out there that we can use to look back over some of this stuff and try to diagnose a little bit of what it means for us to re- be engaged in a world together and to have a little bit more, maybe apologetic rigor in terms of the ways that we defend the truth. So, it's a lot of work for God to do in us, and I hope then through us. So let's pray to that end. Father, this has been a long sermon. I thank you for giving energy and strength to those that have been uh, here listening. Lord, as we revisit this passage and as we prepare our hearts for the rest of chapter 12, what we're eager for you to do is to help us humbly ask questions of ourselves And then, Lord, strengthened by your grace and your forgiveness, we want to be equipped so that we can do good in a world that's rebelling against you. Father, we are grateful that you sent Jesus on a very different mission that we would have sent him on. We're grateful that this has been the decisive work in the world that we need. I pray that we would appreciate Christ more. I pray that we would appreciate Jesus more. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.